Welcome to Behavior Babes podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Joining us today, we have Dr. Rachel Taylor. Hi, Rachel. Are you there? Hey, Amanda. Hey, you are there. Awesome. Um, um, Before we get started, do you mind doing a brief or um, background bio introduction for our listeners? No, of course. Uh, Anyone who knows me knows that I have a tendency to speak way too fast. So at any point you need to say, Rachel, I need you to slow it down, please do, okay? Because especially if I get excited about a particular topic. But fortunately, I don't get too excited about talking about myself, so I can do that relatively at a decent pace. Uh, So yes, my name is Rachel Taylor. I am currently the CEO of the Center for Applied Behavior Analysis. We call it CABA, and we are located in California. Um, CAB is a little bit of a unique agency in that we provide support to individuals of all ages uh, across a range of diagnoses, Um, but I started CABA after having been fortunate enough to be an executive in several large-scale, well-established agencies. I was the uh, co-director of research and development for CARD, for example. I also started their specialized outpatient uh, services. I was the department chair for the Chicago School of Psychology in Los Angeles and started their master's and PhD programs in ABA and was also faculty at Cal State LA. I also worked for another uh, ABA company in California that interestingly had started as a floor time company and called me in and asked to help change their systems to be an ABA based company. And so kind of a unique background in that sense. But prior to all my California time, I'm from here originally, but When I was becoming a behavior analyst, young in my career, I did work on the East Coast. I was fortunate enough to start out at the New England Center for Children. I went on to work at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. And then in grad school, I went to UNR and was uh, just unbelievably fortunate to work with an amazing range of faculty members, including Linda Hayes, Dr. Michelle Wallace, Dr. Pat Gezi, Dr. Pat Fryman, Larry Williams. So... I just throughout my career have been able to go across areas of expertise in behavior analysis, but also, again, in terms of clinical practice, ages and different diagnoses. So I just always like to give that background because CABA is a little, a little bit of a weird company in California because so many ABA companies primarily focus on young children with autism. So I hope that was helpful. Did that make sense? It does. And I feel like, you know, I've known you for a couple of years at least, and um, I always learn something new. So I think that's really exciting for me to hear that progression as well. And uh, we were talking once about how there's a lot of behavior analysts gravitating towards the coast. Uh, maybe it's the weather we like. I don't know. Maybe it's the water sports. Maybe there's something connected there. Um, you mentioned uh, working with a company that was um, focused heavily on floor time and then had asked you to transition stuff over. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit more today about adult and adult services, but can you also talk to us a little bit about that process or that experience? I I love that you picked up on that one. It's one of my favorite ones to tell. Uh, And interestingly, it's it's very cool in that uh, many of the individuals that I worked with in that organization uh, are with me at CABA now. I like to clarify, I don't poach staff. A lot of them were my graduate students at the time, but it's been fun to see uh, people who experienced that with me and now working in an ABA company where we're trying to make sure that we are, you know, very well versed in working 
with other disciplines. So anyway, back to the question. So it was an interesting story. Uh, it was around 2008, which is when we started to see the beginnings of obviously all the great work that you've done in terms of supporting the insurance mandates and the changes. And there was a large-scale company in Los Angeles that uh, unfortunately the woman who had founded it had passed away, and she was an SLP. And they had one of the largest contracts with uh, actually I think Los Angeles Unified School District as well. Um, and it was a floor time company, and she had trained directly with Greenspan and all of the leaders in that world, and her son had as well. And when she passed away, her son was left with this company with a little over 100 employees and a very large contract. And to his credit, he said, uh, hang on, I'm starting to hear a lot more about this ABA thing, and this BCBA thing seems to be important. And to be frank, I think he was really focused on the financial aspect of it and recognized that perhaps there was going to be more funding for those services but still also acknowledged that there was potentially a larger evidence-based support, and that's why the funding was there. So long story short, at the time I was a department chair, and uh, being fully in academia uh, really set the occasion for a lot of companies to contact me, to ask me to come in and do consultation and support, usually helping to improve their reliance on evidence-based practices, sometimes more OBM, organizational behavior management stuff, around some incentive programs for employees, et cetera. Um, but he tracked me down, and, uh, yeah, one of the most fascinating phone calls I had, he said, I run a company, it's all floor time, and would you please come in and help us switch everybody over to uh, an ABA foundation? And at that time, and I still remember over 10 years later now, I can't believe it's been 10 years, but it was the first time that I had stepped back and said, okay, I, I didn't really realize that whenever I came in and helped a company design their new higher training, and this is pre-RBT, so we all seem to follow in this like pretty consistent format, and I hadn't really thought about it, where we started off with, the, you know, what is autism and what is ABA, and here's the three-term contingency, and let's talk about preferences, and then we're going to go into measurement, now just retrial, et cetera. And it was this kind of consistent progression that we all seemed to follow. And when I was faced with 100 developmental therapists, I thought, well, they all know what autism is. Uh, they don't they might not care what ABA is, and they're very worried that this company is making this shift right now. So I really had to step back and say, how can I, how can I really adjust this training to get them all invested in really trying to make this dramatic shift? And I ended up starting with, all right, guys, let's, let's all talk about what our ultimate goal is, and that should be to bridge that gap between chronological and functional age. And they all agreed with that, even though they were following a very different philosophical model to do that. They understood that. And then I went on to clarify that, guys, there's some books that are coming out right now. I think it was a controversial therapies that had just come out, and there was a quote in that book that said, yes, floor time is obviously not an evidence-based uh, procedure. However, there's elements of it in terms of uh, really looking closer at child development, involving the caregivers more, that makes it potentially promising, so we should look at this more. So I tried to get them you know, involved by being like, look, even these evil ABA people, because to be frank, a lot of them did think that we were evil, which was unfortunate, that we do care and value about the work that you're doing. And long story short, it was a really nice way of being able to get them really right away thinking about the concept of measurement. So I started with that before I even went into behavior environment relations or preferences or what reinforcement is or any of our other concepts and principles because it just got them oriented to this notion of you're doing great work, potentially, <laughs> um, but we need to make sure that we're able to document those improvements. So let's talk about the importance of measurement. And anyway, I'm babbling here, but my point is the importance was to really kind of have to say, hang on, I need to make sure I'm not coming in and just shoving ABA, ABA down their throats, that I'm taking a step back and I'm 
considering the potential effects of my verbal behavior on the future responding of the listener. In other words, how can I present all of this in a way that's going to increase the likelihood that they're going to be on board with trying to make this dramatic shift? And I know I'm answering this one long, but it was a passionate one, so I'll give you the one punchline that I loved. The uh, clinical director at the time was a woman who was older. She was in her 70s. And when I first came in, she had worked at some state hospitals decades ago, and she said, you know, look, doctor, I, I get this ABA thing, and, you know, I used to have my clipboards, and I had my timers, and, uh, you know, that just didn't work, and I'm really worried about what you're doing here. And I said, no, you know, listen, I understand that, and my job is first just to learn and see what's going on. And over the weeks, I slowly chipped away, and uh, the last day that I worked with her, because she ended up retiring, but it was a fun moment, because she said, okay, Rachel, you know, I have to be honest. I, over the last several weeks, like, I, I see what you're doing I, I, I get it. You know, I, I think it's a good direction for the company to go. I see the value. I just, please know I'm just really scared that by taking away floor time, we're going to lose the magic, to which I replied, I, I don't want us to lose the magic either. I just want to define it. <laughs> and that became the big joke, which is, let's just define the magic and we can take it from there. So it was a very cool experience. And they're now an incredibly successful ABA company. I think they have 15 offices uh, in the western part of uh the United States, and uh, a lot of great BCBAs. They're doing good work and RBTs as well. So it's, it's an exciting accomplishment. It was an interesting experience. Thanks for sharing that. I think, you know, the things that resonate for me with that is audience control, so knowing who your audience is, mm -hmm. um, also not being so rigid ourselves in the sense that we need to look at how we're approaching trainings, look at how we're talking about things. And I, I joke with people that being a behavior analyst is one of the most exhausting jobs because we're in a position where we can't blame anybody but ourselves or the environment yeah. and it's up to us to do something about that um, something else you said that I really appreciate was when you were sharing that last story that punchline there was she shared her fear and something I learned um, working as a school counselor was instead of telling people what I thought we needed to do next I started telling them what my fear and worry was and why I was proposing this solution. And even though I didn't change my suggestions, um, it definitely changed how I was received. So I yeah. think that was a, a really cool connection point. Something else you had mentioned was, you know, many agencies that are starting up or many behavior analysts get their experience, they're working with early intervention. And you have a focus of working across ages and across diagnoses range and stuff like that. How do you how does one get to a point where they have that confidence or they have the skill set um, to kind of take on older and more complex cases? Oh, that's a great question, Amanda. And, you know, I, I struggle with this one sometimes because, of course, I want to make sure that we're not only respecting our ethical guidelines, but we're following them and we all are required to practice within our scope. And if you have not been under the supervision of a BCBA that has experience, with adolescents, young adults, adults, gerontology, you can't suddenly, after working with little kids for four years, say, okay, I'm going to take on this 24-year-old. That, that is the way it is, and it's a challenge because people ask me on a regular basis, you know, how can I find someone to support that, et cetera. So I, I do want to acknowledge that. You know, that said, at the same time, I think that, that needs to happen. So I'm going to put that out there. That's a fact. What I think everyone needs to recognize, though, is that, Behavior analysis is behavior analysis regardless of what age you are, right? And it's interesting, recently, actually, we've been hiring more RBTs into CABA and, uh, that are already RBTs and have been working in the field for a while. And 
actually just last Friday, I was running the first day of a new hire training and had been kind of you know, doing my thing and saying, look, this is what ABA is. And I have a tendency to start right away by saying, let me, let me really explain this to you guys. I'm speaking right now, and you're all nodding at me. You're making eye contact, and I'm continuing to speak. If you suddenly looked away, started staring at the ground, that would influence my behavior. And I'm, I'm just trying to start by being like, let me tell you guys, these behavior environment relations are going on, and whether we're aware of it or not, we're constantly influencing each other's behavior. And moving forward, when you learn more about the job you'll be doing at Kava, you need to recognize that you are the environment for this person's behavior. And I start with real basics like that, and it was a little scary, uh, it has been very scary the last few months as we've brought on more RBTs. The vast majority of them in that first day of training will have this very clear aha moment and I'll probe, I'll say, oh, is, am I saying this differently? And many of them will go so far as to say, I had no idea that ABA would have anything to do with our life. And so I'll push more and I'll say, oh, please explain. And if I thought this was just something I was doing for kids with autism. And I'm saying all this right now to make a point that we're still looking at the same thing with respect to our science, regardless of what the age is. So I want everyone to really recognize that. And Recently, I think there's a dramatic increase in us getting incredibly caught up with our tools and our procedures and people being trained in a specific assessment tool or following an electronic curriculum, which there's nothing inherently wrong with. But if you're looking and saying, you know, SD number four was mastered across three consecutive 10 trial sessions, first of all, for the record, guys, that, that, that number's pretty arbitrary, all right? Let's start with that. But secondly, you're not going to be like, I'm going to go to SD number six now. Take a step back. We need to say, what are the goals for this individual? And what are we doing in terms of arranging the environment to set the occasion to meet those goals? So that foundation's the same regardless of what the age is. So uh, anyway, that's me going off. But I want to make sure I clarify that because I know there's a lot of people that are worried about how to get experience. My first thing is please don't forget that our basic concepts and principles are what you need to be a master of. And in many ways more so when you're working with adolescents and young adults because you're not just saying, okay, this is chronologically an eight-year-old. Our, our assessments have told us that functionally they're around three. Okay, that gives a real clear, these are all the markers we're doing. I had to flip my language when I started Kava and say, well, it's not just about bridging the chronological and functional age gap. It needs to be about increasing independence and improving quality of life. And that's been the big shift that we've supported our BCBAs to look at when we're establishing our initial goals, when we're determining the appropriate programming to do, when we're constantly doing our assessment is, hang on, are we truly increasing independence here and are we improving quality of life? Because obviously, by definition, the extent to which a child can be independent is very, very different than an adolescent, young adult, or adult, and the quality of life clearly is defined very differently. So meaning as BCBAs, when you're getting into this as well, please make sure that you're really looking at goals with respect to that value system for the person you're working with. There couldn't be a more, I think, important message, maybe. Maybe if we continue, our podcast will unearth other great gems. But I do really appreciate how you articulated independence, quality of life. When we talk about the seven dimensions, when we talk about social significance, I don't just mean I'm going to teach you to you know, use chopsticks instead of prioritizing shoe tying in Hawaii, right? Because that's more socially significant of a skill. It's more about saying this is going to help your life, right? That's what we mean by social significance. Um, and I know I spoke way too much. I know we're going to be out of time, but I, I do want to make a point because I did just listen to your podcast on what you just said. I listened to the podcast with Lori Shelley Unam, who is obviously 
an amazing woman, and, and she brought up the federal law that passed in 2014 on, on workforce innovation and, and the Opportunity Act. And when it comes to working with, obviously, adolescents and young adults, there's a great movement right now to make sure we're looking at meaningful employment and pre-employment. And it was great because Lori said to you, Amanda, you're a Ph.D. level BCBA. You get it, and you recognize that when you're working with an adolescent, you're obviously not doing things like sorting colors. You guys are, are, are immediately looking at things like the appropriate social skills to be able to be in a meaningful employment situation, independent living, vocational skills. And as excited as I was that she said it, I got really bummed out because I've seen a lot of BCBAs put in a sorting colors program for an adolescent. So, again, you're making, you're making my point, and I appreciate it. Uh, and I thank both you and Lori for making those points as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Lori might be able to say something like that because she knows me in my practice. But I would be one of the first to say, you know, a, a credential doesn't um, ensure that somebody has that experience or confidence. Uh, certainly it means that we have uh, some things in common and we have a really great starting point but what I've learned about behavior analysis uh, has been mostly after becoming a BCBA, I think, you know, really when I think about it. And some of that's not fair because now I've there's so many years past that than before that as far as my professional career goes. Um, but just because, you know, you are a PhD-level behavior analyst or just because you're not doesn't mean that you can't or that you do have that skill. And I was going to connect it to – for me, when I started working um, also at the New England Center for Children and at Melmark, New England, I worked first with a child in home who was three years old before I found those agencies. And then when I was working at those um, two places, the individuals I worked with were ages 7 to 15 and then 15 to 21. And um, I then, after that, went to a preschool. So, I mean, I was definitely jumping around and I think in reflecting on my own experience and then hearing some of the parallels of your experience and training, it, you know, it's, it's just advice I want to share to people is like get experience, especially while you're learning, figure out what does and doesn't feel right for you or feel motivate you. And for me, I, I think it's what helped what you're talking about, which is understanding the science as a science and not as a, strategy for a particular population or age group. So um, I really do appreciate that. And we, we have a few more minutes. So I wanted to ask, too, because there's so much that we can talk about, and I'm really into this conversation. Um, in addition no, to, same here. <laughs> that would yeah, be really I mean, bad if you weren't. <laughs> of course. No, no, no. Um, but in addition to talking about independence, quality of life, understanding the science as it is, um, you talked a little bit about your experience and um, some of your um, mentors, if you will, what advice would you have for somebody who is either a new behavior analyst or is considering like, you know, do I get into this field? Like, what would you, what would you say to them or what is, what has kept you so passionate over the years? Just in terms of behavior analysis on a whole or specific to adults? Oh, I think in general, whichever one you'd in like general. to kind of, Yeah. Uh, you're getting me. You're getting me in a tough time, Amanda. And uh, this week in particular, uh, we've had uh, some very scary uh, news with respect to funding in the state of California, which I know you deal with that all the time. So uh, it's not a bad thing. I didn't mean to start sad, but I'm like, oh, it's like I want to encourage people, and at the same time, I'm, it's so scary, and I worry that people get in the field and uh, are going to be uh, disappointed to hear about the uphill battle that we still need to make in terms of appropriate funding, especially now when everyone seems to think there's so much money and 
especially young kids with autism. Anyway, I didn't mean to get sad. You just caught me off guard a little bit. What would I say? Uh, I would say, uh, first and foremost, is it part of your value system to ensure that you are participating in improving lives, your, your own and others? I know that seems obvious, but back to our earlier comments about how people think that ABA is a procedure for young kids with autism and you know, maybe it's just discrete trial. You know, if, if the only way you're going to stay passionate about this field, I believe, is again, we're just saying the same thing, but is if you truly understand the science and the value of understanding the science is only, only valuable insofar that you want to use it for good, right? <laughs> so if your number one goal is to improve human life, this is the field to do it in. I mean, that's the bottom line. I know it sounds super cheesy, but people don't actually have that as their number one goal. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They might not even think about improving life. They might be thinking about just making sure they make enough money. And obviously that would potentially be supported by improved life, but it's not the same value system as saying, I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to do something to where I know that others are getting better and, and that I'm a part of that. And that's what I'm so proud with with CABA is, you know, we're, we, we're, we're not just hiring any BCBA that applies and sending out, you know, here's your $10,000 signing, but I'm not trying to be mean to other agencies. I get it, and there's a need and a demand, and let's get people in the door. We're very fortunate, keeping ourselves relatively small, that we can make sure that we bring on board people that have this shared value system. And, and I got very emotional last week listening to see my BCBA speaking in really challenging situations because one of our major service lines is very severe problem behaviors. So people are getting hurt on a regular basis, and, and, it's, and it's sad. And we're seeing really, really devastating situations in home settings and parents that are getting older that don't know what they're going to do with their 24-year-old that's destroying the house. And for us all to step back and say, I love this field because when we're doing our work, it's getting better. And if I didn't have this foundation of our concepts and principles, of our understanding of behavior environment relations, and more importantly, measurement in many ways, and not that just being us documenting things so we can stick it in a graph and a report, but so that we can really say, is what we're doing improving things right here, right now? That, that's good. So your, your goal has to be improving life, and, uh, and so I hope I answered that well. I babbled a bit. I apologize, Amanda. Not at all. <clears throat> um, not at all. No apology needed. Two things that resonate again with what you said is it's okay to be honest, right? So you're saying, Amanda, my first thought is there's an uphill battle. I mean, legislatively we see that. We see that when we look at making sure that we can access services in schools, that we have pre-vocational and vocational training, um, What's great about it is that if we do have, or for those who do have that shared value system, what you kind of find is your people. And you find a lot of people who are willing to continue to work to make the world better. And I think for me, that's what's kept me um, moving forward. Because it's not always um, positive experiences when you are struggling, fighting, advocating for whatever change it is that you're that you're doing that. But when I always say that if you stand, you know, against something or if you're against a particular, you know, challenge, you also really identify what you stand for. And that helps you, I think, connect to the value and to the meaning and, and moving forward. So it's okay to be not, you know, bummed out and bogged down all the time, but to be honest and say this is an uphill battle. But, hey, grab my hand and let's go do it together. So exactly. Exactly. that's crucial. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel, on the podcast. And, and I, before we get off, I want to um, just offer you the opportunity, if there's any resources, websites, recommendations, anything else that you want to shout out for people. Well, um, thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. You know, and, I, and who knows what title you're going to slap on this podcast, so that'll, that'll change the direction because, boy, we just talked about a bunch of stuff that I didn't expect to babble on. But I hope it was valuable. But, you know, I will say because I, you know, I am proud of the increased attention that CABA is getting for supporting adolescents and young adults and, and, and severe problem behaviors and residential programs and all these unique things. And, you know, I will give a shout-out to Autism Speaks uh, in that they have some great resources on their website um, regarding the transition to adulthood, especially resources for parents. Um, that said, I have to say in the same breath that I, I do have concerns about the focus on autism in particular and make sure that people understand that there are decades of research demonstrating the value of taking an ABA approach across diagnoses. So I just I want to emphasize that because that worries me. But at the same time, shout out to Autism Speaks on that. Um, and similarly, guys, just make sure that you're, you're really, really uh, very aware of what's going on in your individual states uh, and obviously policy on a whole. And I'm preaching to the choir by saying this to you, Amanda, and I'm sure your audience, but I stumbled so much a moment ago when you asked me the last question because it's, it's, been, it's been scary in California right now for those of us that are in the regional center system. Many ABA people have completely shifted to focus on insurance, which makes sense, and thank you to you and all of the amazing people that have made that possible. But there's still this great system that is in place that helps people uh, with neurodevelopmental disorders across the board, and, and the funding might get cut, and that is going to be devastating for so many families. And I'm, I'm a little out of it today because I haven't slept in a couple of days because we were writing our formal response and really pointing out what would happen if these services go away. And I had to allocate a lot of time to that, and I'm, I'm proud that I did that. And I worry that when everyone is just focusing on their billable requirements and, and, and continuing to just get out there every day that they're not stepping back and recognizing that they need to allocate their time to, to supporting these policy changes that are going on. So that's, that's my only other spiel because it's what I happen to be thinking about this week. So thank you for letting me say that, and, and I know you, you specifically told me not to praise you, but I'm going to. Amanda, the, the work that you've done is phenomenal, and uh, I, I really am unbelievably impressed. I've shared with you in the past that I just joined social media a few years ago, and I was so fascinated by this whole notion of a behavior babe, and, and I'm like, oh, there's a behavior man. I'm like, what is all of this stuff? And I had no concept, and I had been in the field for 20 years. And just to see how many people are now oriented to the notion of evidence-based practices, the power of ABA, that would not have known that if it weren't for you and all of your hard work. I'm going to get emotional. I just really want to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And, um, you know, again, I just want to thank everybody who joins the podcast for paying attention, for having the conversations, for branching out, for thinking about other aspects and um, applications of our science and for being a part of the conversation. So, Rachel, thank you for joining us today. For anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can always check out www.behaviorbabe.com.